Hello and welcome back for another week of Ranching Reboot Podcast. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher, and this is episode number 83. This episode sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Support for this episode also provided by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Be sure you go by there and check out all the sweet merch rewards I have for the top tier patrons. All my patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher are also automatically entered to win one of the two C90 swag packs that I'm going to be giving away real soon. The other swag pack we're going to give away in the Ranching Reboot Paddock. That's our private Facebook group. Check the show notes or my link tree for a link. Hey man, how you doing today? Doing good. How are you, Brian? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, I was just just mentioning before I hit the record button. It's been a couple of weeks since I've actually sat down and done one of these, so I might be a little bit rusty. That's all right. So, <laughs> so um, so tell us who you are and where you're at to start off with. Uh, my name is uh, Tony Jaros, and I'm in Western Washington, and my buddy and I partner on a cattle ranch in eastern Washington where he lives just outside of Grand Coulee. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I was uh I kind of did a little bit of Facebook stalking you a few minutes ago to kind of prepare for this and I didn't get that good of an idea where you're at. Yeah, I'm pretty uh I keep it pretty locked down just cuz I work law enforcement for my full-time job, so I uh keep a minimal amount of information on the Facebook page, but right now I live in western Washington and our plan is to hopefully within the next year, relocate over to the east side, closer to that area, because it's a challenge being on this side of the state and he's on that side of the state because he's got the brunt of the, you know, manual labor and crossing the path, especially in the wintertime, can be uh, quite the challenge. Okay. So the the western side, you get more rain there, and the eastern side is a lot more kind of like a high desert type environment? Correct, except for there's sections of the eastern part of the state that are higher mountain areas, you know, where a lot more snow and uh, you get down into like the Moses Lake area. It's more of your uh, typical desert area, like, you know, southern Arizona, California and stuff like that. We're kind of I would consider that area kind of high desert, maybe a little bit of prairie style um, ground, kind of like you guys have in Kansas. Big open rolling hills. Yeah, rocky in areas. And then, you know, you go a little bit farther north from where the ranch is. You get into the pines and, uh, uh, you know, the lower elevations of the mountains as you go farther north towards Kansas. Or not Kansas, but Canada. <laughs> oh. I've never heard that mistake before. That's that's a new one on me, but we'll yeah. let that one go. <laughs> oh. So you reached out and you wanted to talk about a specific kind of cattle. Correct. Coriannies. That's what I got into. I started it, got my first pair of Coriannies four years ago. Okay. Used to hate the breed. When I was a cop down in Arizona, I hated them because they'd be all over your yard out on range, ripping fences up to get at your horse hay and stuff like that. I could not stand them. And course you know most of them spent their life in the arena being roped when they were younger so they're used to being around people yep they're used they, to being handled fast and rough yep and they just come right back no matter how many times you chase them off next day it's either 
the same group back or a new group rolling through. So you made an interesting comment, you know, they'd always be in your yard or trying to get your horse hay. And, you know, ever since I've had them and had them around on the ranch, people have been like, oh, they're fence jumpers. How are you going to keep them in behind a single poly, behind a single piece of hot wire? It's pretty easy if you don't let them get hungry. It's when they get hungry, there's no fence that'll hold them when they get hungry. Right, right. I mean, we're these were out on 50, 60,000 acre ranches in the rough desert. So they smelled a good, easy food source. They were right there. So... Yeah, I don't know if I've told this story yet, but um, so a few weeks ago when we brought, uh, when we came into work calves, I had a little package of fall bred cows that I wanted to preg check. We preg checked them, sort off the open ones, and we were going to haul them over to a different pasture. So that was kind of the last thing we were doing. We had everything else turned back into pasture, all the cows that were staying, you know, all the calves, they were all back in pasture and we had 10. Well, nine made it. So this one cow, she's probably, I don't know, 750 pound cow, probably, I think six years old is what the vet mouthed her at. She, um, she tried to jump out of the corrals. Didn't, didn't quite get them cleared. We got her in a trailer, in a half top trailer. She jumped out of the back of that trailer and got loose. She, she was still in the corral. So we're like, okay, fine. We'll just stuff her back in a pen. That's fine. I'll deal with her tomorrow. Hold the, hold the coals over to the, pasture they're hanging out in and um sent all the help home she was kind of back out in the back trap and figured okay whatever we'll deal with her tomorrow morning came back out tomorrow morning she wasn't in the trap she'd hopped two five wire barbed wire fences and a hot wire and was standing in the middle of the herd the next morning yeah they are uh very athletic. I mean, when I was operating solely on the west side here, it's obviously far more populated. I was loading a group of them into the trailer. A panel fell down where I could shut the door on the trailer. A cow and a steer jumped out. And, of course, when I got behind them, they go into panic mode because I'm putting pressure on them. They're they on go, the run. Yep. They go straight to the highway, disappear. You know, I've got 15, 20 cows in a trailer. I'm not going to be able to chase them, so I let them be. <laughs> uh, the sheriff's office showed up and they luckily they disappeared into the brush or hanging out in the field for a week found them again i got the steer to go back into the uh um corral but the cow would not go back into the corral just circle around go back in she was out for at least a week and a half i finally pushed the rest of the cows into the corral cut the electric fence for the pasture pushed her back through on the, our side of the property. She saw the fence was cut open, went in there finally, sprinted up there, tied the electric fence back up, and then opened the corral gate back up so she could get back within the herd because there was no way she was going to go in with me behind her. So. Oh, we've had out, out here where I live, so I've got a highway running through the ranch, and we had a big wildfire in 2016 came through, and it it ended up burning up a lot of the trees in the road ditch. So the state highway department had a lot of dead trees that were starting to fall, you know, fall into the ditch, fall on people's fences. And a bunch of us have been putting some pressure on them to come out and clean it all up. So the state got some money from the government, from the feds and they came out and they, they cleaned out about cleaned all the ditches for over 20 miles. And it's really nice. And so where they tore out all the brush and the trees, you know, of course they came in, they put down their mats and reseeded and put fertilizer down. With 
about 35 to 40 percent of our normal rainfall where do you think the only green things growing are right now (laughs) during the road ditch where they planted them so uh, the best fence in the world really isn't is is going to get challenged by everything and oh haven't had one for about five days but there for a while, there for about two weeks, it was every other night I was getting a call. There were cattle on the highway. Most of them weren't mine. <laughs> yeah. That's the best feeling in the world, right? Like eight o'clock at night, you get a call and it you know, pops up sheriff's dispatch. Before I even answer, I'm already going and I'm pulling my pants on, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm already starting to get dressed because I know there's no other reason why the sheriff is going to be calling me at, nine, at eight o'clock at night. Other than there's a cow on the highway that I need to go look at. So phone rings, pulled pants on start getting out the door and the last few times it hasn't been mine that's been that's been kind of nice but uh you know there's three or four of us out here that have had to put uh everybody else's cows in it's just kind of yeah. rotation like ah i'll take this one you get the next one yeah and last year was bad for us you know i feel bad living on this side he has to deal with it most of the time but it was uh, such a bad drought last year they were out constantly in the neighbors uh wheat fields um jumping fences getting into other pastures and stuff like that same grass on our side as the other side there and then this year has been a lot better the only issue we had last year is he paid some high schoolers to feed the cattle in the winter time we had them all in the corral for the winter they left the gate open eight of them left got a snowstorm those eight never came back and about three months later he found two of them seven eight miles away in a canyon was able to gather those but we haven't been able to find the rest of them so we, we figured they got disoriented during that snowstorm and just kept wondering and wondering wondering and you know we're the only ones in the area that run coriannies so if something would have popped up at someone's pasture would have stood out like a sore thumb but that's kind of the way way things are around here i'm the only weirdo around for miles and miles with with horned colored cattle so if one of them's out pretty sure it's mine right yeah i mean i like the breed i love it i started out raising uh dairy cows and crossing them to um, beef bulls usually through ai i got a buddy who does uh, ai so i experimented with different uh bulls and stuff like that and then i started doing more and more research on the coriannies talking to guys um and i liked what i saw you know the hardiness of the animal minimal maintenance and stuff on them and they're funny animals. I mean, you can have them in the corral in the winter time and they're like dog gentle. And the second you put them out on a big pasture, it's almost like they turn into a wild animal. I've noticed a lot of difference in the corrals, you know, bringing them, gathering from the pasture, bringing them in. We can do that with feed trucks. We can do that with horses. I can do that with side by side. And that's a fairly low stress operation. As soon as I get my coriones in the pen, I've got to have everybody get off their horses or things are going to get or things are going to get Western because if we're working them on foot, you know, that's not, that's not their fallback from say most of them are, you know, worn out roping stock. Right. You know, and I'm not saying that, you know, that that's all of what I have, but there's enough of them in there that I have that are worn out, you know, that are retired roping stock that when they get in that confined environment and you put cowboys in there on a horse, they want to go fast. Like they fall back into that, you know, that previous training from their former life and they want to go fast. They want to get away because that's their training and that's their program. And I've found 
if we go tie the horses up and get on foot, and it seems counterintuitive to get on foot with animals that have, you know, two feet of spear hanging off their head. Yeah. Um, but they stay calm. They stay calm. They stay gentle. And we can get a lot more done um, without the cattle getting getting stressed out. Yeah, we don't usually use horses in the pen. We've always kind of done it by foot because it was usually him and I. Last year, I think he had more, or this spring, he had more help. But our biggest challenge was the first year, a bunch of cows I got were already bred back to Coriani bulls. Uh-huh. And those Cori, purebred Coriani calves are a nightmare to work. They're like torpedoes. They slip through anything. It was a rodeo jumping. These calves were literally jumping like four foot fences and busting out of that corral. So now we finally got all cattle panels around the corral, metal panels. So there's nothing getting out now, but those things were wild. <laughs> so I, I've got some, I've got some full blood Corianes that I've raised from calves that I, cause I bought sale barn cows that were already bred and I had no idea what they were bred to. And I kept all those heifers cause well, why not? Yeah. Um, and there's some really good looking heifers in there and well, I've probably got, I've probably got 10 or 12, two year olds that are full Cory and a, that, uh, they're a little wild, kind of like jackrabbits with horns. Yep. Just big jackrabbits with horns. Yeah. Yeah. So I was glad once we got rid of all those, now we're down to just pure crosses now. Um, cause we're running shorthorn bulls, okay. uh, our cows. So Everything that's calfed on the ranch over the last two years has been a purebred, or a, not a purebred Cory, any but a cross. So, are your cross like, calves a lot? Uh, are your cross calves less attitudinal than your uh, Coriana calves? Oh yeah, they're a lot easier to work. Um, they're mellow. The bulls are like dog gentle. The gal I buy them from, she actually uh, shows the okay. bulls so when we get them they're usually always uh, halter trained they've been handled i mean we had one out on the neighboring ranch uh about a month ago and we located the bull and he just started walking towards the horse and led him right back into the pasture like it was just not uh normal for him you know? like he knew what he was supposed to do yep exactly so that makes it makes it super nice so well so Let's back up a little bit and tell me about, tell me about your ranches. Tell me about your land base. So land bases, uh, 2018, my buddy actually bought a, uh, I think it was about 14 or 1500 acre ranch. Um, about a year or two, I can't remember. It was either a year or two after a wildfire burned through the ranch. It didn't destroy the, um, the house or the outbuildings or anything like that. Just mainly fencing and stuff like that. And the, uh, um, power lines and so forth so and then he sold off a bunch I, of you know after going through it i'd rather have the fences be fine and the house burned down because you can insure the house yeah and you'll get a better one but the fences are not not you, you can't really insure your fences and you got to rebuild all those and that's that's all pure cost yeah and he spent hours and hours you know out there running new barbed wire fixing the current barbed wire and stuff like that and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done out there, but he sold off a couple parcels. He sold off a 300 section acre to me. Um, I had most of the cows. So eventually just moved all the cows over there. And um, I think we're at about 1200 acres now. Um, still working on our infrastructure to get, uh, you know, then goal is to rotationally graze and stuff like that. And uh, kind of 
split our herds because we are keeping some of our heifers, the crosses and, you know, trying to keep them separate from the father run a different bull on them and stuff like that. So we're still working on the infrastructure stuff, but it's also hard to work in full time, both of us to be able to put the time in needed and the funds and so forth, to, you know, get the operation where we'd like it to be. But like, as far as grass goes, um, yeah, the blue bunch, wheat grass, cheat grass, obviously Kentucky blue grass and Sandberg blue grass. Um, a lot of the pasture is sub irrigated. Okay. So usually the grass stays pretty green most of the year and is growing. And then the higher parts where it's rockier and stuff, obviously it's usually spring grass. So what's your winter like up there? Uh, winter kind of varies. The last few winters have been pretty mild. Last winter, they got a decent amount of snow over there. So we were looking forward to uh, our ponds being filled up again because last year everything dried up from the drought. Um, but the snow melt up, I guess he was talking to some of the local ranchers around him and they said the snow melt off was too fast. So all the water absorbed into the ground, I guess I didn't quite understand it. So the ponds actually already dried up over there. Some of the, uh, the ponds that we usually had for most of the grazing season have already dried up. Um, but as far as winters go, I don't know what the actual snowfall total is usually there over the, uh, winter time but i know it gets down to it can get down into the january time frame uh negatives like i guess what, I, what i'm getting at is let's talk about your winter feed program for this year what's your plan to get through the winter to green grass next year the winter feed program this year with the way hay prices are we're trying to i think the goal is to run them in a 170 acre section that has not been touched yet for as long as we can um, until the snow flies and it's too deep. But our biggest challenge is the, the watering piece. Right now we're down to just watering at the corral because those ponds have dried up yet. Okay. The plan is to eventually get some uh, wells dug for just livestock in some of those pastures and you'll put them on the corner of some of the, uh, the paddocks. So you got one water source for a couple pastures right there. So if we're going to end up grazing like that, it's gonna have to do some fence building you know allow them into that corral from that pasture in order to get water and stuff so that's that's the plan because last year we got a good deal on hay and i think we started feeding hay i can't remember when he started feeding it might have been the beginning of december and the amount of hay we had took us through mid-march time frame 90 100 110 days that's not bad yeah yeah so that's not bad for as far north as you guys are. Yeah. Well, and that's why I've been messaging you too about your uh, protein, just because of the, the cost of those protein tubs now. Yeah. You know, I'm here. I'm sitting here asking you what you're going to do and I don't have it all figured out yet either. Um, you know, it, it might be a mix of some alfalfa hay and protein tubs this year, just to kind of moderate the cost and to reduce the ration a little bit. Like, keep trying to step down the protein ration every year, you know, not, I know ranching for profit likes to say you can't starve a profit into a business and I'm not trying to starve my cows. I'm just trying to push them to see what's going to succeed. Right. Every year, you know, every year, every season, ratchet that input back a little bit, you know, ratchet, pull back the inputs and increase the management a little bit. And, uh, 
we'll see. Maybe I'm going to have a wreck. Maybe it'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing this year, I don't know how it is for you guys, but the hay prices are just crazy out here. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Last year, I had my buddy DJ bail up oh, a few acres around just so I could get just so I could get about a two-week hay supply. Because that's about all I like to keep is a two-week supply of hay around. And that's just in case we get like we get a big snowstorm that sticks around for a few days. We get a big ice storm. That's that's kind of the condition I need to feed. But I'm also only about 20 miles away from the Oklahoma state line. So hard winters are fairly rare here. And looking at the outlook, it looks like the La Nina pattern is supposed to continue through the winter. And with where the jet stream is supposed to be, I'm probably going to be on the dry side of that. So I'm, I'm probably not going to go buy any more hay this year. Um, Just maybe save a, I'm planning on maybe keeping a couple like fencing off a couple ridge tops for next year. So I can pull some hay off of it next year in a different spot. Um, but that's just prairie hay. And last year, so I was just kind of trying to price it last year and it was maybe $65 a ton last year. I mean, you can hardly give it away this year. The same kind of prairie hay is 180 or more per ton for just prairie hay just going out going out to the pasture and swathing and bailing native range it was 180 dollars a ton and yeah the good feed you know the sorghum sorghum sedan based type feed hay i've been driving around enough in the last couple of weeks i just don't think there's going to be very much of it around here so i'm i'm really I'm really wondering how many guys have a plan for winter or actually have a workable plan for winter that doesn't involve, you know, a couple hundred tons of hay. Yeah, that's kind of what it comes down to. A couple of years ago, I dabbled into doing my own hay, but I'm not a mechanically inclined person and, you know, got to the point where you're ready to burn your baler down when things go wrong because you can't just figure out the mechanics of it i mean i got most of it done but i did most of it myself too and it was small square bales and it's like ah this isn't just worth this isn't worth the amount of labor that goes into it for just me and then we get a year like this year it's like ah with pay prices the way there i kind of wish i still had some of my equipment because we could have done some bailing on the on the ranch but you know it kind of is what it is so I'm just waiting for the guys to go start running up and down the county roads and bailing the ditches in the county. <laughs> yeah, that's what my neighbors used to do in Minnesota. They would just he would literally bail the ditches. Old time. I've heard stories during previous droughts of the old timers turning their cows out into the into the ditches and letting them graze the long pasture. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, and that's the way it was like on the West side last year, you know, we usually get, I'd say uh, everyone who's lived, grew up around here says typically get rain to about the 4th of July. Last year, our last rainfall was sometime in the beginning of May, super hot and dry all year. Usually you guys get pretty good yield here with uh, the moisture and stuff over here. I think guys yield last year on dry hay was half of what it usually is. And then this year, 
the opposite. Guys didn't really start bailing dry hay here till almost the end of the June because of the amount of rain we got throughout the spring. Fields were just way too wet. So, and last year, tons of hay was going to Montana. Yeah. With the air, so truck after truck was going uh going east. Probably not going to be a whole lot needed to go east this year. They had a great. It looks like they had a really great year in Idaho. I think all our friends in Idaho are doing good, and they're helping our friends out in Montana that are suffering. North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, they got good timely rains there. Late spring, early summer, they're doing fine. But Western Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming, Eastern Colorado, down in the Panhandles, and New Mexico, it's uh, it's it's pretty grim. Is it? Yeah, it's it's not great <laughs> by any stretch of imagination. I think. Um, well, it was the 1st of August, I saw a graphic the National Weather Service in Dodge City put out, and it was it was kind of broken down by like the six regions that Dodge City forecasts for, and my little spot, out of the 130 years they've been keeping records, this was the 128th driest August 1st to August 1st they've recorded. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's not, it's not the all-time record. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just really close really close now forage production is who we caught an inch rain i don't know 10 days ago that's made everything look kind of green for a little bit at uh yeah. you know the summer heat's still here and things are starting to get yellow again in a big hurry yeah uh, how many head do you run brian and did you start out specifically running coriannis well so that's an interesting question. So I've been I've been out here now for 16 years, been my grazing business. I started in 2008. So was custom grazing from 2008 to 2000 or uh, till 2020. And in March 2020 is when I bought my first set of cows. And through 2020, I oh, made several runs through some sale barns and scraped up a, what I thought were some good, good deals and good buys. So I've only had my Coriannes since March of 2020. Um, okay. so I'm a little newer to this than you are, but you know, as far as the grass, the cows, the ranch side, uh, we've been doing that a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm still a fairly, fairly new livestock owner, but I've been caring for other people's for quite a long time. Uh, took my first one of the processor last week. By the time this one comes out, should have some of that back. So I'm looking forward to seeing what some of my, my cows taste like that have been on the ranch since March of, uh, 2020. Oh, nice. And then what are you running for bulls again? I couldn't remember if you were running Angus or. I have run Angus. So in 2020, um, we ran straight up Angus and well, last year we ran straight up Angus. And then for the fall, I had, I had a bunch open and off the summer session. So I wanted to put some bulls in to try to get another 15 cows bred on a fall try. Um, we ended up getting over half of them bred and those were Fleck V influenced Simital bulls. And those calves are hitting the ground literally right now. I've already had two of them as we go to recording. And hopefully by the time this one comes out, I'll have all of them on the ground. And uh, the two so far that we've got are just beautiful little red calves so far. Nice. And um, is that what you're running from here on out as far as bulls go? Because I know you, that's what you're kind of looking for. Um, yeah. So this year I put one Angus bull out, one of those Simital bulls, 
And then I had my friend Richard bring up a Mashona South Pole Cross Bull. That was a year and a half old. So hopefully that little that little Mashona South Pole that I named Carlos, hopefully <laughs> Carlos has covered my two-year-olds and the one-year-olds that were cycling already. And you know, the Angus and the Semitol covered everything else. That's the hope. Nice. Yeah, because for the longest time you read all these articles, I feel like everything, everyone's about, I shouldn't say everyone, but Charlet, Charlet, Charlet on the Coriani cows. And you see a lot of guys doing the Angus and stuff like that, but I haven't really run into anyone else who's using shorthorn bulls. I mean, they're hard to find out in this area because I feel like that's a Midwest breed. So. Uh, 50s and 60s, that's all of us here with shorthorns. The shorthorns went away, and then the Herefords came in, and the Herefords went away, and the Angus came in. So just wait for the next fad, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Charlet, I think Charlet on Coriente cows, I think that's a good terminal cross. But that's not what I'm after. You know, the, those, those Charlet Coriente cross calves, you know, 80-plus percent of them are going to be smoke. And those smokes sell like fire at the sale barn. Buyers love them. I don't know why. You shouldn't. You send something else there from the same breeding group. You know that's colored up, and they won't touch it with a ten foot pole. But you send a pen of smokes, and I've seen them sell like hotcakes. I think that's a good cross. How how that Coriente Charlet does as a maternal cross? I'm not entire. I, I've never seen that. I don't know of anybody actually doing that. Do you? There's a guy I talked to on Facebook a little bit. His name is Toby Dahl, D-A-H-L. He's got a big ranch in, I think it's northeastern Montana. And I think he might be doing that. He was kind of doing just about everything. He was running Charlet bulls on them. I think he was even running some uh, belted Galloway bulls on some of the crosses. He was kind of really mixing it up. Um, I haven't really talked to him in a while. It was just a couple of messages we exchanged on Facebook when I was starting to get into it to learn a little bit more about it and see what direction I wanted to go into. He would probably be a good one to reach out to um, about his program. I know he uses Coriannis and he does do some Longhorn. Okay. I'll have to check that guy out. Toby Dahl, you said? Yeah, Toby Dahl. I think I've seen that name sounds familiar. So, Tell me why you like the shorthorn bulls. Uh, well, the gal I buy my bulls from, she runs Charlets and shorthorn bulls. So Charlet was what I was going to go with. But that year she refused to sell any of her bulls because her sire came up with bad feet. So she wasn't going to sell anything to breeding stocks. So she castrated everything and revised her breeding program so I ended up buying a shorthorn bull from her after doing my research and reading on them um <clears throat> they're super docile you just said one of the most important things I think from a bull breeder is she said I'm not going to sell you anything this year because I think I've got a problem and we're going to reset yep I like that and that's that's somebody that I would probably want to do business with as well oh yeah I bought that year I bought a shorthorn bull from her um showed it in the fair then the next year i bought another one from her um very well built bull 
he'd been halter trained. He's not as uh, gentle as the other one because the pandemic hit. So she just put halters on him and kind of got him ready to go. But none of them went to the fair. So they didn't go through her full program and stuff like that. But everything I read about the shorthorns, uh, the growth, they're docile. We haven't butchered anything yet. Um, the fertility, that was another big one for me. Uh, you know, obviously the earlier you can breed them, the better. Um, instead of getting stuff at, you know, 18, 19 months and some of those other breeds it takes them longer to mature and stuff like that. So that was kind of some of the reasons I went with that. And then I was hoping for biggest thing was the growth, you know, get something with explosive growth on the calves. And I feel like we don't have the infrastructure set up where we can weigh stuff. And I would like to get to the point where, you know, we can, uh, do a better job tracking, uh, our cows productions, you know, which calves are which with cows. Cause you know how they get into a herd like that. And it just, it's like, where's Waldo? You don't know <laughs> who's, who's with who. So I would like to start tracking some of that data. So then we could start calling out cows that just aren't doing well for us and stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, we're getting horns on these short horns. <laughs> well, some of them are short horn bull to orientation. It's probably yeah, gonna happen. We're getting some, some are uh naturally pulled, others, you know, you got little nubs popping up, you know, nothing, nothing like a coriani by any means, but they're there. I'm pretty fortunate. This year's calf crop, nothing even head nubs. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 a pretty uniform calf crop. We only had one one of them in there that's really colored up and it's it's a white calf of black spots. I call him Django. Y'all might've seen pictures of him on social media. Uh, just about everything else I had this year, I had a couple of Browns. Most of them are blacks and a couple of reds. Only one of them was really super colored up. Okay. I think we might've had one or two Rones this year. Most of them will pop out solid red, a little bit of white on the stomach. We did have one, uh, white face heifer last year. Looked like a Hereford um out of that coriani bull both of them are solid but you know you get on those colored cows and you end up getting something uh you never know what you're gonna really get so what's your if you could have any bull you wanted for your coriani cows what would it be uh, that's a good question i mean i like the short arms right now um i've considered maybe getting a charlet you know, to split the herd up a little bit and kind of compare calf crop just to see. Um, I'm pretty open, to be honest with you. Like like when I had my Jersey cows, I would experiment. You know, I did Angus, Charlay bulls. Um, I did one Simitol just to see what the, the cross turned out like and what, what grew the best. But, yeah, I'm, I'm happy right now with shorthorn bulls. I would really like to find a homozygous hold black Hereford bull. I think a homozygous pulled black Hereford bull on my Coriana cows would do something. Would yeah. be, I, okay. So one of my clients brought up, he brought up some black bulls, brought up some red Angus bulls. And after about two weeks, three weeks, all four of the black Angus bulls had to go home. They were all losing condition. They were all hurt. And they wouldn't stay with the cows. The red bull's still there, but he brought up a couple Hereford bulls. 
and they are still checked in. And that was oh, five weeks ago. They're still checked in. They're still working. There's every, every time I see them, they're amongst the cows and they don't look like they've lost any condition at all. If anything, the little one has gained weight. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm just less than impressed every year that goes by with the production Angus genetics and how they perform in pasture. Yeah, I would agree with you too. I kind of wanted to do something different because, you know, all you ever hear now is Angus, 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 Angus. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot of good breeds out there that are do well on, you know, hardy conditions that Coriani's uh, perform well on. And, you know, I think there's a lot of good crosses out there that can come out of the Coriani cows that aren't from a Angus sire bull. I would definitely agree with that. I think it's just, there's going to have to be enough of us weirdos that like crap cattle that are trying different stuff. You know, you with your short horns, me with the Semitol and Michonne South Pole, we'll find something that works. And, you know, and, and what works for you in Washington state might not all work for me down here. Yeah, I mean, I had a lady reach out to me on Craigslist trying to advertise uh, feeder calves, wanting to, I just put short on cross. She wanted to know if they'd be good for uh, show calves for her 4-H kids. And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> so, Probably not so much. No, I said they've been out on range for months now, and these are crossed with uh, rodeo cattle. So I referred it to the gal that I buy my uh, short run bulls uh, from, so... No. So how are you at? So what are you doing? Are you shipping cattle to the sale barn? Or are you doing uh, um, direct sales to consumer? Or? The plan is direct sales. So like the last couple of years with all my steers, I've just gotten rid of them. I've just taken over the barn and got rid of them at weaning just because I didn't want to deal with them. Um, I've kept at least one steer out of every calf group just to you know keep them on the place and see how they grow. Um Part of my part of my thing is if I'm going to sell meat, if I'm going to sell somebody beef, I'm not just going to go buy a feeder, stick it on the ranch for three months, then go get it processed and put my brand on it, right? It, and if people do that, that's fine. That's totally fine. But that's not me. You know, if I'll sell you an old cow in a package and I'll tell you, I had this cow for three years and tell you everything I did to it, but I don't want to go buy a feeder that I don't know how it was treated for the first six months or year of its life. How many shots it got, what kind of pasture it was in, what kind of, you know, what kind of high energy supplements it had. I don't want to go get one of those and then resell that as mine. If I'm going to sell it, I'm either going to tell you this is ranch raised, which means it was maybe not conceived here, but it was born here. So I'll have some ranch raised beef to sell next year. But in 2024, everything I'm going to have to sell is going to be 100% my breeding, my feeding, and my management. And that's what I'd be proud to put my name on. And that's why it's taken me so long to get anything to sell because I want to be able to stand behind it that I know everything that went into it, that it's 100% me. Well, and how's your marketing going? That's where I kind of struggle is to reach out to friends and family to get your name out there. And I feel like you run into that brick wall where people him and ha about it, the price. The other thing I've learned around here, especially on the West side, 
you get people that live in the city freezer space is minimal yeah they'll have a, like a little college apartment size fridge yeah. and want to buy a half of beef yeah because that's all you can afford here in uh western washington with the way uh the market is right now the housing market and rental prices and stuff so yeah it's it's a challenge and i did, i wrote down here i was going to ask you about marketing because i i don't really have much of a plan but i have time to build that right yeah so i just took my first one of the processor and like i said by the time this one comes out and everybody hears it um i don't know check social media i might be really struggling to try to find a home for several hundred pounds worth of ground beef because i've got four more going to a different processor at the at the end of the month at the end of september so yeah the first one is kind of an experiment to see if i can get rid of it and then three weeks later i'll have to get rid of like four more <laughs> yeah yeah so my marketing we don't really have much marketing we just reach out word of mouth i pull out the phone tap into the network and stuff like that some years i feel like you get a lot of response back and people jump all over it and you sell four or five animals and then there's other years you struggle just to you know fill an order of two uh, steers that you're processing and stuff like that well there's there's about 18 or 19 people that listen to this podcast every week i've got you know i've got a few on social media on facebook instagram twitter and that that evil tiktok app i think i can get it moved it's just how far i'm gonna have to move it that's because I don't want to, I don't want to have to, it, it take for me to ship meat anywhere is just going to be a, a large logistical challenge. I can't dry ice. I can't get dry ice out here anymore. That's a two hour drive away. And while I'm there, well, that's also the shipping center. So do I take everything in one cooler or a couple coolers from here, take it up there, go buy the dry ice, go pack it in somebody's parking lot and then take it to the shipping center. No, maybe. And maybe that's what I end up having to do, but I would rather, I'd rather that meat not leave more than about 50, maybe a hundred mile radius of my ranch. I want to try to feed their community, not try to feed the world. Yeah. And you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, like on the West side, Western side of Washington, it's. You have millions of people within two hours. <laughs> and they want locally grown product that's the thing it's just a matter of me finding the way to get into that market and having the the infrastructure and stuff like that because now i live i sold my house last year so living in a condo with my fiance right now so it's kind of a challenge i got my f550 parked outside which has created some issues around in the parking lot here for some of the uh the local residents and stuff like that and people don't quite understand it's 550 it doesn't turn on a dime and it takes a little bit to back it into a spot so and the normal city size parking spaces yeah only about six inches bigger than what you need exactly so so we're the plan is hopefully the plan is next year we're able to relocate to the east side buy a piece of property within distance of the ranch so then you know i don't like the city i hate it yeah i grew up in rural minnesota went to college in the twin cities and i moved down to arizona lived down there for a few years and when i transferred up to washington my duty assignment was uh the suburbs here just outside of seattle so traffic's bad here i don't really like the weather on this side i'm used to 
same as you going out in the winter time you can actually do stuff outside because the ground's dry and it's rock hard here the ground's moist and you sink about five inches into the ground because of the mud from all the rain doesn't sound like fun now introducing c90 ocean minerals c90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch with over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S-E-A-90 dot com. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We're always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. You said something, and can we can we talk about your day job a little bit? Yeah. So what do you do for your day job? Um, I'm a law enforcement officer, so now I'm a game warden. My first three years, I was a cop down in Arizona. I worked on a reservation down there. Ultimate goal in life was to be a game warden, so I transferred up to the state of Washington in 2013, got hired on as a state game warden here, worked here for about seven years. And then I transferred over to one of the tribes here uh, outside of Seattle. I've been doing that for about two years now. And that, that was kind of the basis of my question. Cause you said, you told me that you're in tribal law enforcement. And then you said you were working around the, the suburbs in Seattle. And I was just kind of curious how that worked. There's a lot of tribes on the West Coast here, just up and down the coast. Most of them are small tribes, like land-based wise, you know, there's smaller reservations and stuff like that. Like when I was a cop down in Arizona, the reservation I worked on, I think it was 1 million or 1.5 million acre reservation. Uh, a lot of the reservations on the West Coast here, on the, I shouldn't say the West Coast, but on the coast here on the Sound, there are some down on the actual Pacific there in uh, Southern Washington are usually pretty small. Now where our ranch is in Eastern Washington, there's a large reservation over there. That's around, you know, 1.52 million acres, but yeah, as far as a uh, populated area. So you got Seattle, which is King County. Then you got Pearson, Snohomish County. I live in Snohomish County right now. Those are very heavily populated counties with a million plus people. You get out into the eastern part of the county, it's the Cascades, so it is rural out there, but it's not your ideal living conditions and stuff like that. So most people are centralized right on that I-5 corridor. See, I had a old Navy buddy of mine lived in Renton, maybe. Flew out there about, oh, it's like 10 years ago to visit him. And this is when I was still skiing. And... So living in Kansas, where do I go ski? I go to Colorado, 13, you know, 12, 13,000 feet ski. And I was in pretty good shape because I just coming off the ski season, I think I'd spent like 18 days on the mountains, right? So I fly up to Washington to hang out with Dominic and he's like, hey, let's go skiing. 
and I think it was, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, Snowmish? Snoqualmie Pass. Did you guys go up there? Yeah, that's the one, Snoqualmie Pass. And it, like the top of the mountain was like 5,500 feet. Like, we get to the top of the lift, and I'm like, I'm getting off, and I'm not even breathing hard and getting ready to go. And he's <laughs> like, is there another lift that goes higher? Because I can still breathe here. This is weird. Just run after run after run. It's so much different skiing at lower elevation. Like, this, it wasn't even work. I was taking stuff that was way harder, way harder yeah. than I would in Colorado just because I had, you know, I could get oxygen and I had energy. I mean, the mountains here get gobs of snow. I remember a couple years ago, Highway 2 going up over Stevens Pass here in Snohomish County was shut down for two weeks because it got seven feet of snow in like a 24, 48-hour period. Seven feet. Seven feet, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen seven feet of snow in a winter in Kansas. Yeah. Because the first year ever snowmobiling out here, I grew up in the Midwest snowmobile and loved it, raced snowcross and did all that, but I'd never ridden mountain powder before. And about halfway into the ride, this was just on normal patrol. I'm like, I'm done. I've dug the sled out two, three times now. This is too much work. I uh, had some guys come across the trail when we were out there patrol and help me dig out. And I said, my coworker went up over the hill over here. Tell him I'll be down back out down at the uh, cabin. If he's stuck, if he can help him get out, because I'm not going back up there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but. That's fair. Yeah. So you made a comment about that you might have jumped in too deep into this whole cattle business type operation. What was that about? Uh, I think I got a little carried away. Wanted to pick up more and more and more cattle just didn't have the infrastructure and the setup for it um you know over here i had a small area where i was running cattle on you know i tried to cut corners with cheap fencing and stuff like that that obviously didn't work out it's not open range over here so cows get out you know it's a big problem if they get hit on the road people are going to be um, coming after you so moved everything over to the east side you know that ranch needed work and obviously the second you encounter problems, you get a cow that gets out, you know, one turns into 50 of them jumping fences and then you got a, a bigger problem. So, yeah, I think we jumped in a little uh, head first instead of taking our time to plan things out. I mean, things are settling down a little bit, but now it's coming down into the, you know, the marketing side of things, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how they get the best bang for our buck and stuff. So that's always challenging. The, like the marketing, you know, like we were just talking about marketing a few minutes ago. Marketing in this business is a huge challenge. And I think that's why that's why the sale barn system developed. That's why the big packers developed, you know, in consolidation, because it's hard. It's hard to manage a production chain that takes two to three years, you know, from conception, conception until it's a product in a box, you know, two to three years, depending on where you're at on the, you know, on the input spectrum and managing that supply line. I can only imagine is just ridiculously complex. So when, when I was at grass fed exchange in Fort Worth back in May, I sat through a panel where there were, um, 
there was a guy that was an aggregator for a grass-fed grass-fed beef company. You know, he's the guy that buy the stalkers, finish them out, put the weight on them on wheat pasture, and then send them to the plant. There was also the, the meat, one of the meat plants he dealt with was there, and a guy that was starting a new meat plant. And they basically said, as, as a meat plant operator, you've got two really huge scheduling problems. You've got to find customers for everything that's coming out of the plant. And they've got to be consistent. And you've got to be able to provide them with product. But worse than that is consistency on the front end side. Is, is getting the people to bring you the cattle they said they're going to bring you. And the gentleman that was starting up his custom plan, I think, uh, I wish I could remember his name right now. It's written on one of the 453 legal pads that are floating around here. Um, but the big problem is, you know, is guys like you and me. You know, we'll call and get five slots three months out. Well, then the day comes, we only get three of the five caught, and we show up with three. Well, that guy was planning on killing you know, he was planning on me bringing two more that day and he's got to keep his guys occupied. So he might not make money that day just because we couldn't get two of them caught. You know, so I can, I can see a lot of problems like that. You know, guys not holding their dates, guys not bringing what they said they were going to bring. That's probably more of a problem for a meat, up, meat plant operator than a customer not picking up what they said they wanted. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, Obviously, when I first started selling beef, you know, you kind of put trust in people. You don't take the deposit like you probably should. And then you start to get burned when guys are backing out like a couple of years ago, literally the day before stuff got butchered, people are backing out. So then you're scrambling to find because I don't have freezer space to, you know, store away two steers. Right. Scrambling to find that. So I kind of came to the point where now if I don't know someone do deposits you know because then you at least you got some money in your pocket if someone decides to back out yeah yeah probably a 50 percent deposit or you know 25 percent to 50 percent deposits if somebody is a month or two out for you know a half or a quarter or you know a hundred pound beef box that's probably entirely reasonable yeah you know, because if they have a little bit of skin in the game and they know they've got a little skin in the game, more likely, they're more likely to stay in. Right, right. And the other issue, too, is, you know, you get people, even quarters are a pain in the butt, but then you get people when you get the feelers out there, they're like, oh, I'll take an eighth. It's like, I don't have time to sit here and do this pie system and break this animal down into all these different uh, sections to accommodate an eighth. It's like, so I try to put as much of it back onto people as I can, like, hey, if you only want to, a quarter then you need to find someone to take that other quarter to go in with you on half and so forth then i'm not out there having to you know find someone to fill that quarter and stuff so so when i was talking your facebook profile yeah looks like you're in a whitewater rafting you know uh, I that. That. yeah i started doing that last year one of my buddies called me up to fill a spot. He started getting into it. A buddy I worked with at the state, he kind of goes, uh, some extent he operates like me, you know, jumps in head first, except he, he tends to jump in head first. He'll stick with that hobby for about a year and then he'll rotate into the next hobby. So yeah, I got into it last year and 
it was a blast. I haven't done tons of it this year, but I enjoyed it. That's something that is not really common in Kansas is whitewater rafting. If you can believe that <laughs> a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, we bought, uh, we bought a couple of kayaks, right? Like, Oh, we go kayak out on the pond. Maybe we'll kayak down the river. So we'd had them about a month and it was kind of a nice day and just had a little rain. And my wife was like, Hey, we're not doing anything today. Let's get the kayaks and let's go down the river. I'm like, okay. So I called my buddy, uh, used to have, used to own a ranch upriver from where I live. And he had about four miles of the river running through his property. So Kansas isn't like a lot of the other States. Okay. There's not, let me see how to describe this. So you can float down a river through somebody's ranch, but they don't have to give you access to get in or out. Okay. Okay. So it's not like a river or rivers aren't necessarily, you know, publicly accessible, all of them, like there are in a lot of other states. Like I'm thinking of Texas, you know, you drive down to Texas and everywhere where there's a river, a bridge going over a river, there's a parking area, you know, that Texas Parks and Wildlife has put there or you know, road department so you can get down and enjoy the rivers. Kansas isn't like that. And at least where I'm at, maybe it's a little bit different in the eastern part of the state or up north where there's actually water in the rivers. But the river I'm talking about is the Medicine River. And right now, I could probably go get across the river and not really even get my feet wet. There's, there's not much water in it. So to finish the kayaking story, I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go. Let's go. Drove up to Ed's river crossing behind his place. Water looked high, looked fine. She puts hers in, jumps in, takes off down the river. I'm like, Oh, cool. She's floating. That's fine. I put my kayak in, I get in and I float about five feet. And then we start dragging. And I drug that kayak down like three miles of the freaking river. By the time I got there, by the time we got down where our other vehicle was, I was like, I'm done. This is it. I'm done. Not doing this anymore. Tired of dragging this thing across sand. This is all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was kind of the way it was down in Arizona. You drive over these bridges and it'd say like, for example, I can't remember what one of the rivers were when I went from Kingman down to Phoenix for uh, drill weekends when I was in the guard. It'd be like the San Pedro River. You look down there and there's sand. There's no water. It's all sand because it's like a seasonal river that only runs during the, uh, the monsoon seasons. So I found it interesting that they classified that as a river and not necessarily a wash because, you know, growing up in the Midwest, a river to me always had water. In it. So. Yeah. Well, the, the Medicine River here, like behind my house, it's still running water, but. 18 miles down, down my medicine lodge. It, it was dry a couple of days ago when I went past. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure where it actually dries up, but uh, yeah. And I've only, I've only seen it go dry probably three times in my life, two or three times. And this is the earliest I've ever seen it go dry. Yeah. We'll get some rain. It'll be our turn one of these days, I guess. Yeah. So now, you do the ranch stuff. Does your wife have a off farm job? No, no, she, she doesn't. actually doesn't. She's um, transit since COVID happened. She closed her massage practice because you know people didn't really want to come in and do that. Yeah, um, she's got a room set up here at the house that you know she can do the she can do massage in, but mostly she's just transitioned to taking care of of the homestead and and the garden and the chickens and the ducks and trying to make sure we have enough food for the winter, but that's been 
a challenge because of the weather. Right. Uh, the tomatoes, it just didn't matter how much care and time we put into the garden this year or how much water we put on it or anything. It was just so hot. Nothing wanted to pollinate. Nothing wanted to germ it. Nothing wanted to pollinate. Okay. And you do all ranch stuff, right? Yes. That's your, okay. And I pretty much sing, I pretty much run that single-handedly. We hire some day help. I had, uh, I've got a young man that helped me this summer. He helped me last summer for a little bit, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much a one man show. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Definitely a challenge. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it sure would be nice to have somebody else around to pick up a few of those eight o'clock at night cows on the highway calls, wouldn't it? Yeah. So the worst is when you know everything's going fine, everything's been going fine, and then you leave for two days. And the first night away, you get one of those calls like, Hey, you got cows on the highway. I'm like, Yeah. Shit. I just got here. I'm three hours away. There's nothing I can do. So you're trying to call somebody like, hey, uh, you go go make sure I don't have a cow running around down the highway. Yeah, that's what I'm getting better about at that family ranching balance. Because, you know, I felt like for a while I was a little too into it. And then, you know, kind of weighed down on family life and relationships and stuff like that. And I remember those same times, too, where you get away for the weekend and all of a sudden someone calls and says, hey, you got a cow out. And it's like shit and then you gotta explain it to your spouse and then they're looking at you like i thought we weren't going to be dealing with this stuff this weekend type of thing so i don't think i've ever been able to leave for the last three times i've left and left somebody around to watch stuff i still get calls yeah i still get calls and i think that's just a fact of the business that even when we're off quote off (laughs) There's still going to be ranch stuff we're going to have to deal with even when we're on vacation in, you know, Alaska, if I could ever manage to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Because last year when I went home to Minnesota to visit family, I had a 45 foot trailer loaded down with like 250 bales of hay I got from a friend over here. Left my 550 hooked up to the trailer. My buddy drove over. And of course, you know, two hours in the drive, he calls me and says, hey, the the clutch just went out right on the top of the the past in the construction zone. And I'm like, shit. And it's not my trailer. It's a buddy's trailer. I was borrowing, you know, I'm in Minnesota. So I'm trying to coordinate a tow truck to come up, tow the car or the, the truck and trailer, you know, two miles up to the top of the pass where the ski resort is. Yeah. It's not like you could just call some, you know, call any towing company. Right. So, so got it hooked up, moved up there. Luckily, it was dropped right in front of the DOT camera so we can keep an eye on the uh, the trailer to make sure someone didn't decide to rip that thing off. And then I had to coordinate to have someone uh, come and haul the trailer. So, you know, a normal run to haul the hay over there, that would have cost, you know, $200 in diesel ended up turning into about two grand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're four dollar uh, bale hay that you're hauling over there turned into about eight or nine dollars bale by the time it actually hit its final destination and stuff like that so that sounds like just all kinds of fun sounds like something that would happen to me yeah honestly so your uh your email address invest jaros jaro 21 yeah it's just something i came up with uh when i was in college i was trying to get a little bit more into the, the stock market and stuff 
Um, and for some reason, I don't know why I didn't put the S on the end of it. It was something that was already taken or something like that. Cause you know, you type in the email address and it'll be like, Oh, this one's already taken. This is taken. This is taken. So it gets frustrating when I got most yeah. of my email addresses 20 years ago, it wasn't really that bad, but it's really frustrating now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've had that same email address for 15, 16 years now. So I just keep it the same. Say with my phone number, I've been using the same phone number from Minnesota for like 16 years. It's like, I'm not going to sit there and send out this, all these text messages to tell people, Hey, phone number changed, updated in your phone. So that's kind of how I am with my email address. Like I've just had it for so long. It's tied to everything. My Google account, you know, resetting that or changing that would be so difficult. Right. You know? So it's easy to set up like redhillsrancher at gmail.com. That one's easy, but that one just forwards to my other email account that I've been using for almost 20 years. Everything yeah. just forwards there. So if you email me at redhillsrancher at gmail.com, I'm going to email you back from a different address. And that's okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the problem with the phone number too. You know, you get so many scam phone calls nowadays from all over the United States. I usually got to leave voicemails or text someone saying, Hey, I got your number from so-and-so regarding this or that just to get someone to return your phone calls because I see the 952 area code and they're in a 509 area code in a different state. And they're like, ah, this is probably just a, a spam call. So, yeah, I, if the number's not programmed into my phone, I'm not answering it. And if you don't leave me a message, you're not going to get called back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Had to, had to explain that to a trucking company that was supposed to deliver a, a pallet of product a week or two ago. Well, we called you. Well, I see that I've missed about seven calls that day. I don't know which number is yours. Well, and he, he started to say something. I said, how many spam phone calls do you get a day about your car's extended warranty? <laughs> I said, do you answer your phone when it's an unknown number? Well, no. I said, do you ex then why are you expecting me to? And he didn't say anything. I said, did your guy leave a message? He didn't say anything. I said, I know he didn't leave a message because if he did, I would have called him back. There's no difference between an unknown number popping up that doesn't leave a message. Like, I'm not going to call you back. I'm not going to waste my life calling back all these spam numbers. Sorry. Yep. So I'm trying to think if I got any more questions for you, Brian. You obviously like the Coriannis and you're satisfied with the bulls you're using now. Is that the direction you're heading in? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm satisfied. Um, so far, the, the two Sim Corriente calves that are on the ground, I'm really happy with how they look. Um, just have to see how they grow over about you know the next six months. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to, what I'm going to come back with and cover my cows with next year. I, I don't know. Um, the Mashona South Pole Bull, he's mine. I've got access to the Semitol Bulls. Um, so I don't know what I'm going to do next year. And like I said, you know, if if it existed, like if my neighbor had a homozygous Black Hereford pulled bull that was raised on grass, that's what I'd want to use next year. Um, there is a Hereford breeder that's got some really, really nice looking bulls that's only about 30, 35 miles away that might be the direction I go next year. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about Hereford and crossing back to Hereford next year. 
And are you carrying over uh, crossbred heifers? Are you keeping your heifers on? I have kept, I haven't sold any of my heifers. I've kept 100% of my heifers. 100% of my heifers. Okay. And, you know, you, you were talking about earlier about, you know, splitting your heifers off with a different bull. I get that. I've been, I don't have the same bull in. So like, I'm not going to be having their, I'm not going to have any risk next year of a father breeding a daughter. Okay. So we're going to be, going to be rotating bulls next year, but my heifers, all of my heifers have stayed with the cows. Um, so in 2020 we did, I did a, I did about a 42 day fence line weaning, put them right back last year. We did about a 60 day wean. Um, I sent the heifers to wheat pasture and they came back. Uh, it was a little less than 60 days later. Um, this year I'm going to let the cows do it. I'm just going to let the cows go ahead and kick the calves off. Um, about a third of them have already weaned their, their spring calf. Okay. Um, and there's some of them that like, I got a little 650 pound cow. That's got a 300, 300, 325 pound calf. That's already weaned. Yeah. So we're just going to, I think we're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to try to let the cows kind of fall a little bit of plain and nutrition, catch them a supplement and, uh, and let the cows naturally wean the calves off. Nice. And have you had any calves hit the ground out of your, uh, your crosses yet yeah out of those semitol bulls yeah i've had two yeah two of them oh okay those are out of the okay all right yep everything else that's everything that we bred like all the spring calves this year were were angus okay and uh what do we have last year i was co-mingled with my buddy last year so we had like six or seven different black angus bulls out at one time okay how many how many cows do you have again I've got about 80. 80 of them? Okay. Yeah. And how many bulls are you using to cover them? Two. Two. All right. So you're kind of in the same ballpark as me, I think. We've got two for about 50. And, you know, at one point we only had the, the original shorthorn bull. He ended up covering the majority of the cows his first year because we only had one bull that year. You know, Kit Farrow is probably the best salesman on earth right now. Well, at least in the livestock business. And if he's to be believed, you know, 50, 60 bull, 50 to 60 cows is what a bull should be able to cover. Right. Our grandfathers that were ranching a hundred years ago, they were probably expecting their bulls to cover 50 to 60 cows. Yeah. And it just blows my mind now that we have, that we have bulls that cost five or 10 times what they did a hundred years ago that can only cover half the cows that seems like we're going backwards right yeah you know i I talk about the two biggest costs in ranching cow depreciation and fed feed costs and one of those we take care of in the front end by buying coriannes and that's the cow depreciation the fed feed cost you know coriannes definitely help with that too because i feel they're a lot more efficient you know per pound of body weight but then getting past that is, um, crap, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, breeding costs. So, you know, let, let's go buy a $10,000 bull and put them out with 25 cows. 
that's a pretty that's a pretty heavy service cost per cow. Right. We can have a five thousand dollar bull that'll cover fifty cows. You know, now your service cost gets really reasonable. And I, I think it just seems like you know these really high priced bulls. Yeah, I get there's retained semen interest, and that's where the you know that's where a lot of times the money can be made. That's not my program. Like that, that's not my business. My business is you know raising cows on pasture, not right. doing AI crap in a, in a lot. Yeah. So I need a bull that can travel, that can perform, that's not going to go backwards in this kind of country that can still cover 50 cows. Yeah. And I'm not sure that there's, I don't know that there's really a commercial bull breeder that's, that's making that kind of an animal. You know, I think there's, I think there's some bull breeders that do the world a lot of disservice by, by really feeding their bulls hard and feeding them a lot. And I get it. I get why they want them to look good. They want them to look good. They want them to look, you know, super big and super fleshy. I'd rather see that at the end of the breeding at right now, like show me your bulls right now at the end of breeding season on the worst, uh, on terrible pasture conditions, you know, hot, it's dry. The grass isn't that great. Show me your good looking bulls now. That's what, that's what I want to see. I want to see a bull that at the end of the season looks as good as he did at the beginning of the season after service and 50 cows. That's a yeah. bull that's worth money. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, you still get the looks and stuff. Oh, you guys run 40, any type of thing. But I mean, I love it. I mean, same thing. I did a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff I bought was private party, but you know, I did the same thing as you went to the sale barn one year. I was at the sale barn quite often and, buying cows for i got a cow calf pair for three hundred dollars and it's cory any calf on our side but it you know that first year the cow paid for herself yep so it's hard to lose money on a coriente pair at three or four hundred dollars yeah real hard yep yeah and i got a couple one year private party sale i got five cows it was a three for one deal all of them had calves on their side and they were bred back to either Angus or Corianne bulls. I'm like, I can't pass up that deal. And that's kind of where I struggle too. Those deals pop up and it's like, I probably shouldn't be buying more cattle right now. You know? <laughs> so I, I, I said that I went to the sale barn. I don't go to the sale barn with money because I'm an idiot at an auction. Like I am a yeah. complete idiot. Whether it's a farm auction, sale barn, I'm an idiot. I keep my checkbook at home. And I tell an order buyer what I want. And then I sit there on TV. Then I sit there on a computer and I watch them buy the shit that I told them not to buy. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I haven't been to the sale barn for a while because I needed to kind of cut back because, you know, those deals would pop up and I'm like, damn, you know, like, you know, there was a couple of sales I was at new guys that worked at the sale barn. And I'm like, I'm glad I wasn't there. There was Corianne's bread back going for like $185 a head, like whole herds. I'm like, I would have walked out of there with 44 cows that I had no idea what I was going to do with. <laughs> so That's why I keep my ass out of the sale barn. Yeah. Cause I'd come home with all kinds of colored, weird horn shit that I wouldn't know what to do with or have a plan just cause it was there and it was cheap. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of the same way. So there was a, there was a Watusi heifer that was probably eight or nine months old that went through the ring one day and 
you know, I'm trying to get a hold of my buyer. I'm like, buy her, buy her, buy her. And by the time I told him that I wanted her, he made one bid. The auctioneer took one more bid and sold her for like $87. I'm like, oh, you let that go. Like I would have bought, I would have paid a hundred bucks for that. Come on, man. <laughs> He's like, it was a Watusi. What are you going to do with it? I'm like, um, shut up. Doesn't matter. I wanted it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I, I would, uh, I know some of the dairy farmers around here. I used to buy the called out dairy cows from them, you know, selling them at five years old. And then I'd buy them, breed them back. And then I grab a couple of calves to graft off, graft onto them after they calfed out. And I got, three calves right there nurse on the cow because i'm not going to sit out there and milk a dairy cow uh, twice a day so but i probably wouldn't either it's like work <laughs> yeah so, i mean it was a work grafting the calf on there i mean once in a while you get lucky with a nice cow that let any calf uh in the world uh nurse on them, but you get some of them that were you gotta tie them up for a week on end until that calf is you know hardy enough and aggressive enough to suck up the beating the cow's giving it so that's not something i have any experience with is, is trying to graft calves yeah i mean i've tried you know if i lost a calf skin in a calf toss them the skin over the top of it and I, I mean guys say it works but i never got had any luck with it so i've seen it work and i've seen it not work yeah you know, like everything else. And sometimes, sometimes something like that will not work. Even though you did it exactly the way you did it the last 10 times that it worked. Why didn't it work now? Yeah. And sometimes we don't always, can't always figure that one out. Yeah. yeah. I get left scratching my head every a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think my oldest Jersey cow was like nine, nine or 10. I think she had like eight calves, like four with me. She'd let any calf nurse on her. She was an easy one, so. But. I've got a 10-year-old cow that just had one of those Simcross calves. And normally, she'll come up, and she's just the most gentle thing. Eat out of my hand, lick my hand, come up, rub on me. Nope, she had that calf. I can't even get within 50 yards of her. And she, yeah. has, that, she has that little thing gathered up, and all I see is tails and feet. <laughs> It's like, no, you're not, you're not going to come over here with that tagger. You're not coming over here with that tagger. I don't tag my calves in the pasture. They'll get tagged when we come in. We, you know, when they get shots or when they get, yeah, we don't, we don't worry about tagging or weighing at birth. Cause, uh, those things have two feet of spear on either side of their head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have a very healthy respect and they know where the ends of those horns are at all times. Yeah. Is there any, anything we left on the table you need to cover today? No, I think that was about it. I like connecting with other uh, any ranchers, you know. What do you think the What do you think the future holds for the Coriente and Coriente cross cattle? You think that's going to be you feel like that might be a growth market in the next couple of years? I think it will be just because of the you know, the cost. I mean, you go to the sale barn, you buy a private party, you spend 1200 bucks on a purebred beef cow that you get $700 for a calf at the sale barn, you know, it just doesn't pencil out, plus all the uh, cost for feeding the animal and stuff like that, and the overall size, too, you know, because 
my ex-father-in-law was a retired uh, cattle nutritionist, so I learned a lot from him, you know. Would you rather feed a six to eight hundred pound animal or a twelve to fifteen hundred pound animal for the winter time and you know, out on grass and stuff like that? And I think the biggest thing for you know guys that they're not ranching full time is the the less maintenance the better. I mean, if you throw a cow on pasture and not have to worry about it all the time, it's you know a win win for you when you're at work full time. So. I see growth. I feel like more people are getting into it. I'm kind of hoping that that in about 18 months, when the industry is starting to rebuild out of the wreck that we're about ready to have, I think in about 18 months, when guys are start 18 months, two years, 2024, when guys are really starting to rebuild their cow herds, in the aftermath of the wreck we're about ready to have, that's when I think that that's when I hope that the genetics that I'm developing, that you're developing are going to be really valuable. Right. Efficient, small frame can exist on not much without many inputs. I think, I think we're about ready to turn a corner where those are going to be very desirable and very valuable. Yeah. I mean, some of these calves that come out of the Coriannis as yearlings, they look like a purebred beef cow and they're a fraction of the size. So, yeah, I'm hoping more people get into it. Um, I mean, there's guys like when I was doing my research, there's a family in Iowa that they raise, they raise just all purebred Coriannis, but they raise them from uh, start to finish, direct to consumer with beef, you know, after a few years. So, but yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that, We'll talk negatively on Corrientes and the quality of meat, and they've never had any, and they've never raised any. They've never been around them. They just repeat what somebody else has told them. Yeah. All right. If you're ready to get out of here, I think we can go ahead and wrap Yeah, I'm up. ready to get out of here. Uh, I think there's a couple other people I should you should reach out to about your podcast, Brian. Um, All right. I've, I've got my big list here. I'm ready. Go ahead. All right. Hit me uh, with me, a few recommendations. Uh, well, you got Toby down there, and then my uh, fiance's good friend. Her mom's big cattle broker in Montana and actually just opened up her own processing plant. Um, let me get the name of it. Her name is uh, Nicole Wines, W-I-N-E-S, and it's Big Sky Processing LLC. Okay. I think she'd be a good one for you to reach out to. Um, and then as far as breeding, I mean – my bull breeder is a good one too. She does a lot of plays around with genetics and stuff like that. Um, Green Gate Farm is the name of her ranch or her cattle operation down in Grand Mound, Washington. And her name is uh, Christy. Last name is Kringsman, K R I E G S M A N. She was the short horn uh, Charlet breeder. That's where I get all my short horn bulls from. But yeah, that'd be a good one, especially the wines. I mean, she's been big in the cattle industry in the Montana, Dakotas area for for years. So I, I kind of have I kind of have it in mind to do a series with a few processors with some people that are doing doing processing. So that might be a good one to fit into that series. Yeah, they just opened up. I can't remember, like Livingston, Montana. They just opened up their 
facility, you know, after the pandemic with the, the backlog of stuff, she opened one up. So, okay. I know where I'm going, uh, where I'm taking my cows in a couple of weeks, they were a custom plant that primarily did, uh, did deer. Yeah. And since COVID, they've taken yeah. the opportunity to do cows too. I use that too. I haul them up to the guy because I got tired of getting on the schedule here around here. I just haul them up there, but I got to pick the non-hunting seasons to haul the animals in because that's his business during the hunting season. So I usually got to go March through July. So, All right. Where, 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 All right. where can we find you on social media if anybody, if you want people to do that? or I, I mean, you can hand out my email address to people or post it on yours. I don't, I just have a personal Facebook account. We don't have anything yet for the Okay. I can do that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. Enjoy the time. Well, it's been great. I appreciate you doing this today, Tony, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Sounds good. You too. This episode has been sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals. Visit C90.com to find a distributor near you or call to request a quote today. That's S-E-A-90.com. And don't forget to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Have a great week, y'all.